1: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Global Ethics and Politics. I'm John McMahon, PhD candidate in political theory at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and one of the hosts of the channel. I'm also a fellow at the Center for Global Ethics and Politics, which sponsors the podcast and is part of the Ralph Bunch Institute at the Graduate Center. Today I'm speaking with Amy Allen, who is liberal arts research professor of philosophy in women's gender and sexuality studies at Penn State University. She's also the head of the Department of Philosophy. We're discussing her book, The End of Progress, Decolonizing the Normative Foundations of Critical Theory, out from Columbia University Press in 2016. This is an absolutely wonderful book that I think would be um, interesting to a wide number of audiences, Alan starts by kind of mapping different usages of the term critical theory, as well as the kind of tentative engagements between critical theory and post-colonial and decolonial theory, ultimately arguing that there needs to be a greater attempt to decolonize critical theory itself. From there... Alan walks us through a couple different kinds or understandings of progress, one backward-looking, one forward-looking, as well as with post- and decolonial critiques of notions of progress and their entanglement with colonialism and modernity. After this, Alan investigates the question of how can one ground their normative perspectives and normative claims in doing critical theory and following a critical theory method. This leads her to approach and critique three different central thinkers coming out of the Frankfurt School tradition of critical theory, Jürgen Habermas, Axel Honneth, and Reiner Forst. After these chapters, Allen turns to Adorno and to Foucault for an entirely different way to read and think about questions of normativity and progress, one that offers a different approach to an imminent critique and to the relationship between history and normativity. As she puts it, it involves opening up lines of fragility and fracture in the present. This itself turns into a wider discussion of genealogy, how to critically problematize our present, decolonizing critical theory, as well as questions about unlearning, epistemic humility, and ultimately openness to the other. Sounds to a tremendous book, and I enjoyed the conversation. I hope you do as well. I'm now speaking with Amy Allen, who is liberal arts research professor of philosophy and women's gender and sexuality studies at Penn State University where she's also the head of the Department of Philosophy. And today we're going to be speaking about her book, The End of Progress, Decolonizing the Normative Foundations of Critical Theory out from Columbia University Press in 2016. Amy, thank you so much for joining us on New Books in Global Ethics and Politics. Thanks very much for having me, John. So I'll have you start by kind of asking the traditional question here on the New Books Network, which is to tell us a little bit about your own intellectual and academic background and then how you came to write this particular book.
0: Um, Sure, I'd be happy to do that. So I'm not sure exactly where to start, but I could say that um, I studied for my Ph.D. in philosophy in the early to mid-1990s at Northwestern University which was at the time um, really a very exciting place to be doing work in critical theory. Um, Nancy Fraser and Tom McCarthy, both of whom were my dissertation advisors, were there. And Jürgen Habermas had just uh, retired from Frankfurt and was spending some portion of each academic year at Northwestern um, during the time that I was a student. So it was a really exciting um, place and lots of students were working in critical theory. And um, initially, actually, when I went to Northwestern, that wasn't the reason that I went there. Um, I was interested in working on Foucault and feminist theory. And um, I have to say that I didn't actually see myself as working in the Frankfurt School tradition um, while I was a student. But in the years after I finished my Ph.D., um, I began to realize that The interests that were driving my work on Foucault and Hannah Arendt and Judith Butler and my interest in feminist theory were really, I would say, methodologically um, aligned with the project of critical theory. And so um, after my first book, which was a revised version of my dissertation, um, which was on the concept of power in feminist theory my work started really moving more um, centrally into debates within critical theory. And that led to my second book, which was called the politics of ourselves um, power, autonomy, gender and, and gender in contemporary critical theory. And that was published with Columbia in 2008. Um, and there I really was trying to work through, kind of interpretively work through the Foucault-Habermas debate and its um, well-known feminist iteration in the form of the debate between Judith Butler, Shaila ben and Nancy Fraser. But conceptually, I was really trying to think through some of the issues that I took to be central to that debate, um, namely, which had to do with the, <clears throat> the question about whether we could think of the self as both constituted by relations of power and at the same time capable of something like critical autonomy. Um, And that book was uh, really trying to develop a kind of middle ground or, I don't know, um, it's been described to me, which I think is right, as a kind of bridge building project between um, the work of Foucault and um, Habermasian critical theory. But there was one issue that kind of popped up a couple of times in that book, but I didn't really feel like I had dealt with it. Satisfactorily, and it sort of led to the current book that we're talking about today, and that was the question of Foucault and Habermas's very different understandings of history, um, and particularly around the question of historical progress. Um. So the more I started thinking about that, the the more. I thought that the project of trying to bring Foucault and Habermas together was going to, the major stumbling block to that was going to be this question of history and the question of progress. And essentially that idea led to me writing this book, The End of Progress.
1: Right. Now, you know, let's perhaps start where you do both in the title and then one of the quotes that is one of the book's epigraphs. um, Adorno's claim that Progress begins where it ends. Um, how does that kind of um, I don't know spur to thinking perhaps help orient what it is you're trying to do in this book?
0: Yeah, that's a great question, and I'm I want to emphasize that I think the way that I'm using that idea, it's good to, the way you described it as a spur to thinking. It's um, I I'm taking it up I think in a very different way than Adorno understood it in his own uh, famous essay on progress. Um. But I think the core idea is something that I see already in Adorno, and that is um, an attempt to distinguish between two different aspects or understandings of progress. So one of the um, big conceptual moves that I make in the book is to try to say we need to distinguish between progress understood as a backward looking claim about history as it has led up to, you know, quote unquote, us or our current um, historical situation on the one hand, and on the other hand, progress as a forward-looking moral or political imperative that might serve to orient our political strivings or struggles. Um, And that's the core idea that I see, or move that I see Adorno making. So when he says progress occurs where it ends, um, I take him to mean by that, well, and as he says also elsewhere in that essay, we don't have any really good reason or justification for claiming that there's been any been any progress in history up to now. Um, and yet, to give up on the possibility of progress would be to kind of wallow in the worst kind of despair, which for him is, a, is, I think, an essentially conservative political gesture that he associates with Heidegger. So it's that attempt to kind of break apart conceptually the idea of progress and to understand it as having these two different components um, where we could think about the possibility of progress as a forward-looking moral political imperative somehow arising out of a rigorous um, problematization of any and all claims that there has been progress in history up to now. Um, And it's that idea that I want to um, mobilize both As a response to some contemporary Frankfurt School critical theorists, like most notably Tom McCarthy and Axel Honnett, who have argued recently that critical theory has to have an idea of progress in order to be genuinely critical. Um, And there I want to say, well, maybe so, but we need to really be careful about what kind of conception of progress we think is necessary and that if we distinguish these two aspects of progress, then we could see that maybe there's a case to be made that we do need the forward-looking conception in order to be doing something called critical theory. But it's not at all clear to me that we need the backward-looking one. And in fact, I think that that backward-looking one is actually a hindrance to doing critical theory um, right now because it, um, it basically leads us to not sufficiently appreciate the ways in which the narrative of pro- European modernity as a story of progress is bound up with um, narratives and actual relations of imperialism and colonialism. So um, the distinction between forward and backward-looking aspects of progress is is partly designed as as a way to respond to this claim that critical theory needs an idea of progress in order to be genuinely critical, and I want to say, well, yes and no, Um, and let's be careful about how we're going to understand progress in light of the um, ways in which the idea of progress is um, bound up with these, the legacies of colonialism and imperialism. And so related to that, the, the other aspect of the sort of decoupling of these two ideas of progress is to try to make, um, to try to offer a way of understanding the relationship between history and normativity in critical theory that can allow critical theory to decolonize itself from within by um, giving up its, um, let's say, um, affinity for or leaning on a certain understanding of progress in order to justify its own normative projects.
1: Right. Now, that's I mean, a really helpful, both in the book and in this conversation, kind of mapping out of these different notions of progress that are at stake in critical theory more broadly and in this work in particular. And now another kind of important mapping that you do in the early parts of the book, in the preface and in the first chapter, are to kind of, map out the different usages of the term critical theory in relation to the aims of the book. So I was hoping you could perhaps kind of walk us through the different ways that that term gets used and then what particularly it means for you most importantly in this particular text.
0: Yeah, okay, thanks. That's a that's a big question in a way and one that I have really spent a lot of time, um, I'd say over the last 15 years of my career, thinking about Um And in some sense, um, actually trying institutionally to change how we understand the concept of critical theory. Um, So I'll say more about what I mean by that in a minute. But um, yeah, so the the term critical theory has obviously kind of wider and narrower usages. Um, In the kind of widest usage, I think one could use the term critical theory to apply to any kind of body of theory that is – aims to be critical of existing social relations. And so there you could include, you know, pretty much any work going on in feminist theory, in critical philosophy of race, um, in queer theory, in, um, you know, a whole wide range of um, of theoretical approaches would count as doing critical theory in that really broad sense. Um, In the much narrower and more restricted sense, um, critical theory can be used to refer to this tradition, which I've already alluded to, the Frankfurt School tradition of doing critical social theory that, you know, has certain kinds of methodological aims and um, a certain tradition of, you know, the different generations of this project and so on and so forth and and comes very much out of of the Western Marxist tradition. Um, So it does have a kind of radical political heritage Um, But it's not so broad that it encompasses these other broader usages of the term, you know, feminist theory, critical race theory, queer theory, etc. And then finally, there's a third usage that I map out in the book, which is, um, you know, sometimes people use the term critical theory to refer to what we might otherwise just call theory in the domain of comparative literature or literary studies, where it really seems to refer to a body of mostly French theory, some Italian theory, I guess, too, um, you know, including the work of people like Foucault, Derrida, Deleuze, primarily. um, But some early Frankfurt school theorists, I think, too, like Benjamin and Adorno would get included often in that understanding of theory as well. So, you know, the, the term critical theory is complex. It's, Um, contested in some ways. Um, There's a lot of slippage there. What I try to um, do in the book is to say, in some ways I see myself as kind of working across all of these definitions. And in one way to understand what I'm doing in the book is to try to stage a conversation between critical theory in the narrow sense so the Frankfurt school tradition of critical social theory and um, certain um, bodies of critical theory in the broader sense that so far haven't been taken up in my view very much by the central figures of the Frankfurt school. And there I have in mind primarily post-colonial theory, but also um, feminist and queer um, let's say work that's done at the intersection of feminist, queer and post-colonial theory. That might be the best way to describe it. So that's one kind of aim or way of describing the aim of the book. Um, Another thing though, that I have tried to do, I think, throughout my work and that continues in this book is an attempt to work across the divide between critical theory in the more, uh, literary studies or, um, complit sense and critical theory in the Frankfurt school sense by really trying to bring uh, French theory into sustained conversation with, um, the work of people, at the Frankfurt school. And I've done the, the majority of the work that I've done in that vein has to do with Foucault, um, but um, in general, I'm interested in thinking across these divisions between, you know, French theory and uh, German Frankfurt School critical social theory. Um, so that, all that said, um, in the book, what I say at the beginning about my understanding of the term critical theory is that it has uh, a few key components. So it refers to a particular intellectual tradition which is this tradition of the Frankfurt School that I see myself in some way as inheriting and taking up and situate myself within. Um, But it also refers to a methodology, uh, which I find very productive for thinking um, about questions of domination, subordination, social injustice, um, and so forth. And that methodology is one that, as I understand it, is attempting to um, be somehow uh, both normative and empirical at the same time. So it's, it's um, you know, not offering, it's offering normative um, kind of guidelines and insights and so on, um, but in a way that is supposed to be thoroughly grounded in an empirical understanding of existing social reality, where that includes a complex and sophisticated understanding of, Power relations in existing social um, orders. So, um, in that sense, I think methodologically critical theory really it precedes the whole ideal theory, non-ideal theory debate that has been taken up some in political theory in recent years. And um, I think is a really there's a set of really sophisticated and interesting methodological reflections about how to think through and past um, the limitations of so-called ideal theory without collapsing into, you know, a kind of, um, cynical political realism or something like that, um, to be found in the, in the literature of the Frankfurt school tradition. Um, so that's how I sort of define critical theory. Sorry, there was a third component I didn't get to, which, so there's the tradition, sorry, the tradition, the methodology, and then the third is the practical, um, aim of something like emancipation. And there, I think, you know, that concept is tricky and I've written, um, recently a piece that was published in Hypatia last summer that's kind of a follow-on from the book that tries to um, articulate how I would understand emancipation. But um, essentially, I have a kind of negativistic understanding of emancipation as the minimization of relations of domination. But I think there is this, you know, practical um, aim of critical theory, as I understand it, that is trying to offer a critical understanding of existing social relations that can be politically and socially transformative in some sense, whether we want to think about that as a full-blown, you know, utopian conception of emancipation or whether we want to think of it in a more limited and negativistic way as I would want to um, as the minimization of relations of domination. So those are the key components of critical theory as I understand it and try to practice it in
1: the book. Yeah, that's incredibly helpful. And I mean, one thing that you discuss at various points throughout the work, but perhaps I could ask you, um, kind of in general now, how you explain perhaps a more limited sense in terms of kind of the Frankfurt School of Critical Theories, lack of engagement with post-colonial theory and decolonial theory.
0: Yeah, so that's a great question too, and it's it's a, in, a, in some ways a question that um, really spurred, I mean, the particular form that this book takes. <laughs> um, I mean, there are, first I want to say there are some prominent exceptions, um, places where um, frankfurt school theorists have engaged um, with with questions of you know coming out of post-colonial theory and studies so tom mccarthy's uh, relatively recent book race empire and the idea of human development is a prominent exception i think also shaila ben habib's book the claims of culture which is a bit older now could you know be another exception so i don't want to pretend or suggest that you know no one has uh, talked about this but at the same time um what I do claim and what I think is correct is that there hasn't been sufficient engagement by these central figures in the um, second, third, and now fourth generation of the Frankfurt school. And there I have in mind Jürgen Habermas, Axel Honnett and Reiner Forst um, with the question of um, the post-colonial, if we want to just use that shorthand for now, uh, recognizing that there are a whole bunch of questions built in there and that it's very complex. But, um, and I, you know it's puzzling in a way um and it's partly the puzzle that um that led me to to write the book in the form that it took um but what I eventually kind of decided was that this this the extent to which theorists like Habermas and hannet are really i think very deeply reliant on a particular understanding of um progress where where progress is a kind of shorthand for a cluster of concepts including things like social evolution, historical learning um, and so forth um, but that cluster of concepts is I I think doing quite a lot of work for both Habermas and Hannet in terms of um, helping them to justify their own normative standpoint and as a result, it seems to me that there's a limit to how much they're, how far they can go in terms of um, engaging with the challenge posed by work in post-colonial theory. Because, you know, as varied and complicated as that is, it, it seems to me that um, calling into question the um, story of European modernity as the outcome of a process of historical progress is central to that body of work. Um so in other words what I what I ended up sort of coming to realize is that maybe um people like Habermas and Honneth hadn't really engaged deeply with this kind of challenge because they couldn't actually because doing so would really require them to tell a very different story about normativity and that that was such a central challenge that it it just um they couldn't go there if
1: that makes sense Right, of course. I mean, as you said, this is kind of one of the motivations behind the format of the book and to kind of mark that out for the readers before we continue. So chapters two, three, and four of the book um, are these really, really rich, really deep readings of Habermas, Hanath, and Force. Um, and we could spend an hour talking about any particular one of those chapters, I'm sure. Um, so but if we don't, I'm assuming we won't have time to talk about all of that, but just to mark for the readers that you know, even if there was nothing in this book about um, postcolonialism, these this would be incredible chapters to read. But it's just made all the more important by that um, particular conversation that you've set up. And perhaps as we kind of get into talking about those chapters, you know, and you've marked this a little bit for us already, Amy, um, that kind of one of the problematics that you're trying to think through, one of the foundational questions of the book is how do critical theorists or how can critical theorists ground their normative claims. Um, so maybe you could kind of lay out for us some of the terms of that particular problem, that particular question and the way it's going to play out, um, in the book itself in these chapters on these three thinkers.
0: Yeah. Okay, great. Um, so I actually think this is sort of commonly assumed by a lot of critical theorists, maybe not everyone, but that there are, um, there seem to be on the table only two existing options for how to ground uh, one's conception of normativity. If, if one is methodologically committed to something like the project of critical theory. Um, So, and by that, I I emphasize that because um, I take it that it's a kind of common methodological starting point of people working in critical theory that we're um we're in a kind of post hegelian uh, philosophical space. and by that I mean, so we have we would all accept the idea that reason and therefore normativity also are um, socially embedded and historically um, embedded concepts um, and that you know the the, the sort of old uh, Kantian project of attempting to ground one's um, concepts of reason or normativity in some kind of conception of pure reason um, is not on the table or not an option any longer if one is methodologically committed to doing critical theory. So it, so that the kind of starting point as I see it is to try to ground one's conception of normativity or one's normative principles within the existing social world and to think of normativity as something that is a thing of this world. And then the big challenge becomes, well, how then can the, that normative, um, those normative principles or that conception of normativity have real critical bite. Um, how, in other words, um, can we think of our conception of normativity as historically and socially, historically grounded and socially embedded and embodied and impure in that sense without it just collapsing into some form of conventionalism where our normative principles just become, you know, how we do things around here. Um, And I think it's that worry that's really central to the strategy that as I see it, both Habermas and Hannett have adopted for, um, for grounding their understanding of normativity. Um, and so, so as I understand them, um, at, well, anyway, let me start with Habermas. As I understand him, there's at least a very, very central Hegelian kind of aspect or moment in his um, strategy of grounding normativity. So, And by that I mean his answer to the question of um, why are normative principles that we find by reconstructing our actual existing communicative practices in um, modern post-traditional societies, why those principles are not how we just do things around here has to do with his theory of modernity. It's because we can understand those um, modern linguistic practices and the point of view of modern post-conventional selves as the outcome of a process of social evolution and historical moral practical learning that we can feel justified in claiming them as this this um, normative standpoint. So in other words, as I read him, there's a, at least a very important um, Strand of is thinking about normativity that is being supported by what I call a vindicatory genealogy of our basic normative moral principles. Now, Habermas's view is very complicated, and it takes me a lot of pages in the in the book to go through um, the different aspects of it. And there is this kind of also neo-Kantian strand um, where, on on some readings, he looks like a kind of um, Kantian constructivist about normativity. My overall interpretive argument of, with respect to Habermas is that um, I think he's much more Hegelian um, and that the theory of modernity plays a really central role for him. But even if um, we grant that the total picture is kind of messier for him and that there are both these Kantian and Hegelian elements, still, I think that the theory of modernity is doing important work for him at the very least and that the overall account of normativity that he gives can't really work unless, um, if we call into question that theory of modernity. And then in a way, um, the other two chapters on Hanna and Forced sort of take up each a different side of this overall kind of Habermasian approach to grounding normativity, where as I see it, Axel Hanna has a much more, um, explicitly and avowedly kind of neo-Hegelian project where he's attempting to give a much more contextualist grounding of normativity that by Honneth's own admission is really dependent on an idea of historical progress in order for it to work. Um, Forrest, on the other hand, I think, picks up on the other thread of Habermas's work, and precisely because he's worried about the role that a certain understanding of history plays in relationship to their understandings of normativity, not so much for post-colonial reasons, but more because he's worried about the conventionalism objection. Um, he goes in a much more neo-Kantian direction and attempts to derive his understanding of normativity from an account of practical reason that is, you know, Kantian constructivist in its um, in its uh, structure. And there, so so in a way that those three chapters are sort of like Habermas is this kind of mixture in a way of Kantian and Hegelian aspects. So there's a story about practical reason and there's a story about modernity and they're somehow working together to justify normativity for him. Honneth picks up more on this story about modernity, I think, and progress, and that plays a much more central role in his account. Forrest, on the other hand, picks up much more on the neo-Kantian, practical reason, constructivist attempt to ground normativity. Um, And in a way, then, Honneth and Forrest are kind of each developing one side of Habermas's normative project and sort of in a a much, uh, let's say, purer form than Habermas himself adopts. Um, and then um, my own argument, which maybe we'll talk more about, but I'll just say a few words now, is um, to try to say that from the perspective of a kind of post-colonial critique of progress, um, all—or I guess from the perspective of post-colonial critique more, critique more generally, all three of these options for grounding normativity are problematic. And so if critical theory wants to be able to rise to that particular challenge, Then we need a different strategy for grounding normativity altogether.
1: Right. That's I mean incredibly helpful. I'm wondering that maybe perhaps um, if you could lay out for any listeners that are not quite as familiar with the postcolonial or decolonial literature, maybe kind of flesh out a little bit more the kind of multivalent critique of the notion of progress that those kind of bodies of thinking give us.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, so as I sort of. Um, discuss this in the book, I see two different kinds of challenges to um, the notion of progress, um, one of which is more, let's say, conceptual, and the other is more uh, political. And one can find um, both of those challenges, I think, in the post-colonial literature, although the more conceptual critique of progress one also finds in other places as well, not only in the post-colonial literature. So um, so the conceptual challenge one one also finds elsewhere in other kinds of critiques of progress, not necessarily coming from a post or decolonial direction. Um, so the conceptual challenge um, has to do with you know what's the point of view from which one could ever make a claim about history as a story of progress, and um, the worry is that absent some kind of supra historical. Um, perspective or point of view from which we could look at different kind of historical epochs, if you want to use that language and say, this one is superior to that one. Um, then the notion of progress really doesn't make any sense or, or it starts to look like something like just a um, mechanism of self congratulation by which we say, Oh, aren't we, you know, isn't our point of view somehow more superior and better than those that came before. Um, so that's a kind of conceptual worry about progress that I think can be articulated independently of, and has been articulated independently of a post or decolonial position or, um, perspective. Um, although one does also find versions of it, I think in the, in the literature of post and decolonial theory, the more political objection, which I think is the really prominent one or is really prominent, I should say in, um, in those bodies of theory, uh, just has to do with situating the notion of progress as a kind of an enlightenment ideal that emerges in Europe, in the European enlightenment that is really closely bound up with Europe's declaring itself, Europeans declaring themselves to be superior to um, those quote unquote primitive, um, you know, tribes that were um, at the time that this idea was being articulated being um, encountered in and through colonialism in Latin America and then later in Africa. Um, so there the worry is that the notion of progress has this history that I think, you know, actually don't think there's any argument about this from people working in critical theory either, that it does have this history of having been thoroughly implicated in an imperialist logic by means of which, Europeans justified their colonial colonizing mission that, you know, it was an attempt to civilize um, these members of these quote, so-called primitive tribes um, who were um, developmentally, you know, whose social forms were developmentally represented developmentally prior stages of, you know, human sociocultural organization or something like that. Um and so that's the more political side of the critique. And there, there's a couple different elements. I mean, one is the more ideological element that um, the idea of progress itself. It, and it's not here. I think it's important to point out that the problem is not so much with the concept of progress. It's with a particular reading of history whereby European modernity is represented as a progressive um, historical development, um, in relation to other kinds of sociocultural forms. So it's that, that's what I meant earlier by the backward looking story about progress as a process that has led up to, you know, us in scare quotes, um, where us means something like Euro, the Euro Americans who want to defend this idea. Um, so so there's the ideological kind of aspect of that, the way in which this particular concept of progress or idea of progress is bound up with a problematic um, legacy of colonialism and a, and a kind of imperialist logic. But there's also um, a more material aspect to it, which is that um, as many post-colonial theorists have pointed out, I mean, starting with Frantz Fanon, but there's a whole you know, important body of work that um, that develops this idea since Fanon, that Europe itself, I mean, as a kind of material entity was built on the expropriation of resources from the colonies so that there's no way really to even think about Europe as a material entity without also thinking about how that material entity was formed through colonialism was made possible through colonialism Um, so those are the two aspects, the more ideological and the more material of the, um, political challenge to the notion of progress that I try to spell out in the book. And, and I do, um, one thing that's interesting is that in some work in post-colonial theory, and I have in mind here, um, the work of someone like Depeche Chakrabarty, but there are others as well, the, um, political and the conceptual critiques kind of come together. So there's a sort of, um, a very sophisticated um, critique of the notion of progress that brings these two aspects or threads together into um, its challenge that I don't think, as I said earlier, has been really successfully met by the Frankfurt School critical theorists who want to defend the notion of progress.
1: Right. And perhaps there is a kind of good opportunity and may- to shift to kind of talking some about Hannah more particularly. And- could you perhaps give us an overview of his argument that progress is ineliminable in some ways? um, And then the particular way that you respond first in general, and then in a few minutes, perhaps we can get into the kind of queer post-colonial critique of gay marriage.
0: Right. So, um, tries to make a kind of, uh, transcendental argument, um, that progress is ineliminable for people doing critical theory. Um, according to which, you know, we, when we do critical theory, we have to be situating ourselves within some kind of existing, um, let's say social or political transformation. And that when we say that we are in favor of, you know, some particular um, political or social transformation, and the example I talk about in the chapter is gay marriage, that this only makes sense if we are thinking of it as a progressive historical development. Um, so that's kind of simplifying a, a long story, um, I think, but I don't think it's an inaccurate um, sort of summary of the thrust of his view. And what I try to do in the book is to, sh- is to really probe that transcendental argument and to say, well, um, is it really the case that when we take sides on a particular issue, you know, as let's say critical theorists. So for example, gay marriage, um, does that mean that we have to understand that um, as some sort of progressive, you know, historical development in in such a way that we would be committed to this both backward and forward looking story about progress. And I think in Honneth's work, it's really the backward looking story that he's um, when he talks about the ineliminability of progress that he's referring to. He thinks um, I think that when we, when he says we have to be committed to seeing this as a progressive historical unfolding, he means, you know, as better than what came before. Um, And therefore, it's part of a kind of historical, you know, conflict-ridden and um, not completely linear and certainly by no means necessary, but um, cumulative learning process, historical learning process. That's the language that he uses. Um, And there, I'm just unconvinced. I mean, I think, um, you know, people might be, uh, let's say, in favor of gay marriage, if we want to stick with that example, for all sorts of reasons, um, none of which necessarily seem to me to imply that they would think of it as – as representing a kind of culmination of a historical learning process. Um, And I mean, they might think this is just the best of the available alternatives that we have on the table. They might think it's actually not as good as something that currently exists, but it's, um, but it's better than anything else that's available or they might have strategic reasons for, you know, favoring gay marriage. Um, I think there are all sorts of reasons. One might be in favor, but that, that don't necessarily commit one to this kind of story about progress that Hannah thinks we have to be committed to. <clears throat> Excuse me.
1: Right now then. So that's kind of, I think, you know, you go back to your kind of thinking through the different uh, valences of post-colonial thought. So there's in some ways this more kind of uh, conceptual aspect to it. And then also the political aspect. And that's true. I think of the particular way you think through gay marriage to kind of illustrate this argument. Um, about progress. So perhaps now you can kind of give us a brief overview of the work of Jasbir Puar, who becomes very important for you in this chapter and kind of her own critique of gay marriage and how that kind of situates your own attempt to uh, challenge Hanif.
0: Yeah. Okay, good. So, um, well, the key concept that I, that I take um, from Puar is the idea that gay marriage debates have become kind of bound up within a logic of homo nationalism. So, um, and there, I think, and I think that, that she's right. This is a real danger in these debates that, um, that, you know, countries like the United States or certain countries in Western Europe that um, have recently, um, and it has been a very striking political transformation, you know, and social transformation, the, the way in which opposition to gay marriage has largely eroded and support for it has increased in these countries. But that part of the, the downside of, I mean, and there's reasons to be skeptical I think of that as a story about progress kind of independently of this question of homonationalism, which I acknowledge in the book, but don't really take a position on. And I mean, that's the kind of queer left critique of gay marriage as um, as being bound up in a logic of homonormativity normativity. Um, and I think that's an important critique, but it's not one that I'm really taking on in the book. The point that I'm more interested in in, in is that even if we were, you know, on the side of or, you know, in favor of gay marriage, um, situated in a country like the United States or in, in uh, parts of Europe, that the the problematic thing is the way that that um, stance toward gay marriage is being used as a way of positioning countries where there's opposition to um, not just gay marriage, but homosexuality as being backward. Or primitive, um, or you know, less advanced or enlightened than we are. So that gay marriage becomes this um kind of weapon that gets used um again in this kind of post-colonial logic to position some uh cultures as um developmentally inferior to the West. Um and there, you know, I think that's the logic that that the postcolonial challenge and Puar's work on this you know really raises quite um quite forcefully that we have to think about is to what extent you know in trying to be um kind of good progressives and and i um i mean that you know i think mm-hmm. hanit is i think hanit is a good progressive in many mm-hmm. respects right and, and his work on gay marriage is um is an attempt for him to um, articulate a Progressive social point of view, right? But to what extent, in doing that, do we can we get bound up with these other kinds of oppressive logics without necessarily intending to or realizing it because we are hanging on to this particular conception of progress?
1: Right, and then to kind of shift gears a little bit, and the fourth chapter of the book, um, you know, so if hanath is kind of picking up particularly on the Hegelian. Uh, piece of Habermas's project, and then Force is going to be taking on the more Kantian um, sort of views. So uh, realizing that there's no way we're going to be able to kind of give Force his due here, I mean, maybe you could offer kind of a very brief outline of his approach to answering these questions about grounding normativity. And then more particularly, uh, your critique of him in the way that practical reason in general, or his particular version of it, um, kind of misses the tension between reason and power.
0: Yeah. Okay. Thanks. And I'm I'm glad you asked. We have some time to talk about this because when I was giving my sort of overview of these three chapters, I I focused more on the Habermas and Honneth chapters. I think, and and the criticism that I make of Habermas and Honneth is really um, doesn't apply in some ways to Forrest because his strategy for grounding normativity is so different. So in a way, the structure of the book is like you know um here's uh this kind of neo-hegelian um story of modernity attempt to uh ground normativity and the, the problems that i see with that and forced in a way as an alternative um that's attempting to ground normativity in a different way without relying on a story of progress um but i think it has its own problems um which i'll say more about in a moment and then you know um so that sort of motivates the turn to um, the alternative that I try to draw out of the work of Foucault and Adorno. Um, but so let's stick with Forst for a second. So um, so the main issues I see are these. I mean, one is really methodological. Um, so Forst, as I read him, is attempting to ground normativity in a um, kind of neo-Kantian conception of practical reason. Um which is the the way that he grounds his account of justification, the basic right to justification. Um, So he's not relying on this historical progress narrative. He does think having articulated uh, the basic um, principle of justification on the basis of his account of practical reason that we can then make claims and judgments about progress, because once we have that kind of normative standard in place, then we can look at, kind of past historical developments and decide which are progressive and which are regressive. Um, But that's not, the progress story isn't central to his own conception of normativity. Um, But the problems I see with his strategy, I guess, are twofold. I mean, one is um, that um, I think methodologically it ends up, and, you know, Force would deny this and has denied it, but um, my reading of him is that um, methodologically it ends up in a very abstract, you know, non-historicized understanding of practical reason, what I call practical reason as such. Um, and in that sense, I think he's, you know, ends up doing something that looks a lot less like critical theory as I sketched out that project at the, toward the beginning of our interview and a lot more like what um, Raymond Goyce and Bernard Williams have called um, political philosophy as applied ethics, where we work out our normative principles based on some abstract conception of practical reason. And then we can, you know, the critical project is to just apply those to the existing world. So in other words, um, to use the terminology of ideal and non-ideal theory, what I'm saying is I think, um, what forced is doing is something that looks a lot more like ideal theory than it does like critical theory. Um, so that's a methodological issue. Um, and then the other kind of criticism that I pursue has to do with the conception of practical reason, which I think um, it seems to me is um, foundationalist in nature. I mean, it's an attempt to talk about practical reason as such, rather than these embedded historically specific, you know, forms of practical rationality. Um, and um, that, I think, leaves him open to a different kind of postcolonial challenge, which has been really well articulated by people like Gayatri Spivak but, and others as well, but about how, you know, these putatively universalist notions of practical reason um, end up being covert kind of articulations of a particular Western, you know, point of view that has been defined in such a way that it always excludes postcolonial others, women, queers, blacks, you know, um, et cetera. So, so there, there is a difference. Different kind of post-colonial, let's say, challenge to this strategy, this more normatively foundationalist strategy that forced adopts. It's not, it's not the same as the progress story, but it's a um, I think an important challenge
1: nonetheless. Right. And then in the fifth chapter, we kind of start to, you know, as you kind of talk about it, decolonize critical theory from within. And the two thinkers that you turn to there are Dorno and Foucault, as you've kind of marked out for us. Now, before we kind of get into some of the specific arguments that you're making in this chapter I mean why do you you've told us a little bit a little bit told us a little bit about this and kind of your setting up of how you got into the project but why do you think it's important to read those two thinkers together um, perhaps particularly when some would say they're doing two dissimilar projects
0: mm-hmm. um yeah that's a good question I mean I didn't I guess I didn't go into this uh, thinking I, you know, wanted to, um, let's say, you know, bring Foucault and Adorno together. I mean, that wasn't sort of the aim. Actually, initially, the idea was to try to um, just return to um, first-generation Frankfurt School. So Adorno and Horkheimer's Dialectic of Enlightenment and some of Adorno's other work on um, the philosophy of history as a kind of, you know, something like a the way forward for critical theory is to go back, kind of an argument. You know, that was sort of the initial plan. But um, I had been continuing to do work on Foucault um, after my second book, um, you know, various other projects, and particularly some work on Foucault's early text, The History of Madness. And you know, it just struck me that there were so many common themes and um, and uh, aspects of their approaches between between that early work of Foucault's and between and dialectic of enlightenment in particular um, that there just seemed to be a lot of rich um, territory to explore intellectually, and um, so. And I don't think that's to be surprising. I mean, Foucault himself said, you know, in several interviews toward the end of his life that he, well, he never really read the Frankfurt School seriously, but he wished that he had done it earlier because once he did, he realized there were all these overlaps and so on. And it just, it seems to me that he doesn't specify what works he has in mind there, but I'm, my guess would be he's thinking about Dialectic of Enlightenment in early Frankfurt School um, because... Because that's the only thing that would make sense, actually, mm-hmm. I think, in terms of understanding, you know, which aspects of the Frankfurt School he, he could have thought of as close to his own approach. So I, in a way, the coming together of that chapter was slightly more contingent. It's just that um, I saw a lot of overlap there. My own approach, I think, to thinking about normativity is very uh, Foucauldian. Um and so in some sense, you know, I did want to go back to recover certain themes from Dialectic of Enlightenment and Adorno's work on history and normativity. But I saw those as being, you know, my at least my reconstruction of them is heavily influenced by my own Foucauldian commitments. And so I thought it made sense to kind of lay those on the table, as it were.
1: Right. And I mean, one of the things I particularly like about this chapter is that I think it's a very effective response to those who would critique Adorno and Foucault separately or together for kind of lapsing into some sort of negation of normativity or nihilism or something like that. Um, and one of the ways you respond to that is by talking about ideas of uh fragility and fracture um in the present is a way to approach the imminence of critique differently. So could you talk a little yeah. bit about how that idea um is something you're working with coming out of those two thinkers.
0: Yeah, so that's actually one of the ideas in the book that I'm most excited about um, because, you know, just to think back to some things I was saying earlier about the challenge of how to construct a notion of normativity once we start with the assumption that we derive our normative principles or um, normativity itself from within the existing social world. So the question is, like, how do we do that without lapsing into some kind of conventionalism um, or a conception of imminent critique that's overly imminent, right? That means we can, all we can ever do is talk about how and whether we're living up to our own ideals, but doesn't allow for the fact that those ideals themselves might be thoroughly problematic. Um, and as I see it, I mean, and I think this is common to all of the thinkers that I'm uh, working with in this book, the, the strategy is to try to work with some notion of transcendence from within um, or, you might say imminent transcendence or something like that. Um, so, and I think that that's true of Habermas and Honneth as well. I'm not sure about forced, but I would definitely say it's true of Habermas and Honneth. It's just that for them, the transcendence from within comes from this kind of normative surplus that drives these historical learning processes um, that they see as kind of instances of a progressive development Whereas I see in Foucault and Adorno a different way of thinking about transcendence from within, which is, um, which is that the process or the, um, the, yeah, the project of critique, its goal is to try to open up these lines of fragility or fracture within the present that can be themselves kind of sources of imminent transcendence, without relying on some kind of super historical or purely transcendent point of view, but also without relying on some kind of story about a cumulative historical learning process. It's more a process of using critique to fracture to fracture the um, what Foucault would call the historical a priori, or what Adorno might call second nature, from within, um, and provide a kind of internal um, gap that can itself be a source of, um, imminent transcendence,
1: um, right. by, then, by Oh, go ahead.
0: Oh no, I was just saying by, cre- and, and, and by transcendence, I mean there, it, it, it's transcendent by creating a distance between ourselves and our own historical present, right. By allowing us to see it differently. Um, and, right.
1: there, and then more. the method it's, you know, as you talk about in the book comes to be kind of a critical problematization of our normative present. And that is a kind of particular mode, of genealogical inquiry so could you maybe kind of lay out the couple different ways you understand genealogy is at work in critical theory in a very broad sense and then the particular strand that you see coming out of Adorno and Foucault that are able to open up these lines of fracture
0: yeah okay um so so I and this is not this distinction is not original to me I borrow the um tripartite distinction between um vindicatory, subversive, and problematizing genealogy from my friend Colin Copeman, who in turn is building on the work of Bernard Williams. So, um, but um, I, I think my understanding of problematizing genealogy is a little bit different than Copeman's. Um, as I see it, so vindicatory genealogies are... Um, are historical stories that we tell in order to vindicate or support um, our own kind of beliefs or normative principles. And as I mentioned earlier, as I see it, like Habermas's use, limited, relatively limited use of the term genealogy, he does use the term in um, at least one um, essay that was published, I think, in the late 90s in English. Um, But as I see it, his use of the term genealogy and the concept is um, solely vindicatory. Um, On the flip side, we have then something like subversive genealogy, where, you know, the point of telling a history of our concepts or our um, normative commitments is to debunk them or to subvert them or to reveal them to be, um, in some sense, um, objectionable and something that needs to be overcome. And here, you know, the kind of classic um, uh, adherent of subversive genealogy is typically thought to be Nietzsche. I mean, I'm not a Nietzsche scholar, so I'm not going to take a position on whether that's the right reading of Nietzsche or not, but that's the kind of, um, you know, the, Nietzsche's genealogy of Christianity and Christian morality is kind of taken as the exemplar there. And then problematizing genealogy, as I understand it, is is a kind of a both-and. So it has these vindicatory and subversive elements um, but its overall aim is neither simply to vindicate nor simply to subvert, but actually to allow us to problematize our own present. Um so for example, if I think about um this is true I think for both Foucault and Adorno, and it's interesting that it's true for both of them, that they want to see the ideals, let's say, of something like you know, the ideals of the Enlightenment, um, or at least certain aspects of them, freedom for Adorno, autonomy for Foucault, as um A positive inheritance, you know, with that, that we wouldn't want to do without, but that, um, that are also developed in such a way, um, that, um, that those enlightenment ideals have come down to us in such a way that they're also thoroughly bound up with relations of, um, You know, as Adorno, early Adorno might have said, the domination of inner and outer nature, as Foucault might have said, normalizing disciplinary power. And so it's the both and that I think is central to problematizing genealogy, that the point of engaging with history on that view is neither to vindicate our own point of view nor to reject it, but to allow us to problematize it and to um, think critically in relationship to it. um, And that... um, that's the common sort of thread that I see in their methodological reflections on history.
1: Great. And as we kind of start to come to a close, something, another kind of aspect that I found particularly important coming out of both this chapter and then the final chapter um, was the notion of unlearning. And kind of as I read these two chapters, I was thinking, of, and then talking to you now, I'm thinking about kind of how unlearning, it seems to me, for you, maybe does both work on this more kind of conceptual or philosophical level, but also on this political level, perhaps some in some of the ways that you kind of mapped out um, post-colonial theory. So maybe we can kind of close by you telling us what it is you mean by um, unlearning as kind of a means of decolonizing critical theory.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a concept that is important in some anthropological literature and in on post-colonial theory, um, and I'm borrowing it from those contexts, but I think it's really powerful here because um, I think, and I guess the way that I would try to answer that question quickly is to say that um, the effort of critical problematization and the decolonizing project of the book is aimed more than anything at the kind of meta-normative or we might say meta-ethical stance or a strategy that, as I see it, is being used to ground the conception of normativity in contemporary critical theory. And I'm emphasizing that because I want to say it's not specifically targeted at the the kind of principles that are defended by people like habermas Hannet and forced those principles themselves. So in other words, I'm not trying to say... Um, you know, if we want to decolonize critical theory, we have to get rid of something like discourse ethics or the theory of recognition or um, the idea of justification. Those might be, I think, very useful um, normative concepts that could even serve a project of decolonization. Um, so the the challenge is, or the critique is being articulated at the level of the meta-normative stories, either about progress or about. Um, you know, a kind of conception of practical reason as such that are being used to ground those particular first order normative principles. And it's at that level that I see the need for something like an openness to unlearning because I think that, um, positioning oneself in debates, um, you know, intercultural, let's say, or globalized debates about basic normative principles, whether that's in the arena of human rights or other, you know, kinds of, um, arenas, um, Positioning oneself as either developmentally superior to one's interlocutors or um, as somehow representing a point of view that is uh, genuinely universal, Um, I think both of those are kind of bad strategies um, for (laughs) engaging in that kind of debate in a way that will be genuinely open and inclusive. And as I take it, those values of openness and inclusiveness are important to each of the thinkers that I'm talking about. I mean, Habermas, Hanan and Forst. So, so in a way, unlearning is crucial for me as a, as a, as a meta normative strategy um, that I link to these ideas of humility and modesty about um, the grounding of our own normative commitments, not, not um, an unwillingness to have first over normative commitments, but a, a humility about how, those commitments can be grounded and justified. And it's that openness that I think is important for positioning, you know, oneself um, in relationship to let's say postcolonial others or, you know, uh, other traditions in these kinds of debates.
1: Great. Um, now, as we do come to a close now, I was wondering if there was anything that we didn't get a chance to talk about that you would especially want to highlight for the listeners. Um,
0: I don't think so. I mean, I feel like your questions led us through the book really carefully and methodically. So I'm grateful for that, because I don't know that I could have reconstructed the overall argument as, (laughs) as, uh, as coherently as you did. Thank you.
1: Well, thank you. Um, And I should mark, I mean, the listeners, this is a book that needs to be read and read closely that there's, you know, as excellent as this uh, conversation has been, there's a lot more going on in the book that I suggest that they get and read. And so then I'll turn then to our very last question, the traditional final question on new books. Um and that is what are you currently working on?
0: Well, I'm currently working on a book on um psychoanalysis and critical theory. It's in many ways a companion piece to this book um, although I don't know that it will have the same kind of emphasis on the question of the post-colonial. Um so so by saying it's a companion piece um what I have in mind is that something like this old idea that um ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny is really central, I think, to the work of um, critical theorists like Habermas and Hanitz. And so that the story about historical progress and development has as its analog um, for each of them, a story about individual development and, um, you know, the development towards something like autonomy um, in their work. And I'm really interested in thinking in my current project on how um, psychoanalysis kind of calls into question or can be used as a resource for rethinking some of the developmentalist trajectories that they um, articulate in their work on, you know, what Habermas calls individuation through socialization or something like that.
1: Fascinating. Um, Thank you for that. And thank you for this wonderful conversation, Amy. I've really appreciated you coming on the podcast.
0: Thank you very much for um, for reading my book carefully and asking such interesting questions about it. I'm really glad to have joined you.
1: All right. Thanks. Bye-bye.
0: Bye-bye.